0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present
1: you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with us
3: welcome back to the next picture show a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm keith phipps here again with tasha robinson scott tobias and genevieve koski on last week's show, we talked about Alexander Payne's *Sideways*, once considered the knee-plus-ultra of middle-aged men drink and have feelings and hurt people movies. That was until Thomas Pinterberg said, "Hold my aquavit." Another round begins and ends in the drunken revels of happy young people that take on new meaning thanks to what happens in between. Its focus isn't on teenagers' alcohol-fueled partying and vomiting, but on four teachers who have seemingly left that kind of behavior and the joy that comes with it deep in their past. That changes while celebrating, well, celebrating the 40th birthday of Nikolaj, played by Magnus Milange, when the conversation turns to the work of Norwegian psychiatrist Finn Skarderud and his belief that humans suffer from a deficiency that can only be corrected by keeping a steady blood alcohol level of .05. The idea has particular appeal for Martin, played by Mads Mikkelsen, who's upgraded from middle-aged disappointment to a full-on depression that threatens the stability of his marriage and his career. He... Then the others embrace controlled day-drinking, and if you shut the movie off halfway through, you might believe it works as described. But that's only in the short term, as their habit deepens, old troubles resurface, and new ones appear. Yet, as with the rest of the film, Another Round doesn't have much interest in making alcohol into the enemy, the picture of drinking is more nuanced. One character descends into alcoholism, and others retreat from their new habit, but they often return with a new sense of clarity. What to do with that clarity, however, remains another question entirely. The daglig of alkohol, of ja. konstant
1: health på the health of the på of the evidens, of psykologiske og psykoterapeutiske the samt of the Social og faglig
2: ydmyg. Det er kun i arbejdsiden vi drikker, men det er jo ligesom Hemingway. Vi drikker ikke efter åtte
1: og ikke i weekend. Ejklæ!
0: Ejklæ!
3: All right, another round. I like this movie. What did everybody else think? I also liked this movie.
2: I also liked this movie. I think if I had been able to see it in time, uh, it probably would have made its way onto my top 10 list for 2020. I liked it a whole lot.
1: Yeah, I I had a tremendous good time with it. And, of course, it's the best ending of the year. I don't think there's any question about that. And
2: an ending that works so well in tandem with that opening. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think the opening scene is also just really beautiful of these teenagers on this drunken race around Mm. the lake, you know. And I think that taken together with the ending is just such a vibrant encapsulation of sort of the theme of, you know, reclaiming the joy and possibility of, of youth through... Drinking with without consequence.
3: <laughs> and it was only rewatching it too that I that I realized I set up him being a, a jazz dancer in his past. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's teased several
0: times. Yeah, which is apparently drawn from Mickelson's past. Like he he has said that part of the reason that was written into the script was Vinterberg just wanted to see if he could still dance. Uh and he did that entire scene at the end without any kind of stunt assistance. That's hmm. all him. I, I agree incredible. with scott this is a rare case of me fully and uh thoroughly agreeing with scott i think it's the best film ending of 2020
1: yeah no i mean you can't it can't be denied i mean mad mads, mads mickelson doing that it just doesn't get cinema was made for that kind of thing to happen and uh he's just such a fascinating actor i mean this is one of those actors you just love to just observe you never know what what you're going to get from him he's uh such a compelling Face, you know, and mm-hmm. uh in this character, I think he gets it gets a lot to do with this role. I think the, the the role has a lot of interesting ups and downs.
3: About that face, it's when he starts smiling. It's so not unnerving because it's a pleasant thing to see, but it's just so at odds with what you what what's set up in the in his first scenes as that character, and then what we kind of expect from Mickelson from the films we've seen in him him.
2: Well, Mickelson's face, like his entire face just has a downward trajectory. Like Mm. every line (laughs) on his face is angled downward. So (laughs) whenever it expresses joy or a smile, it just like there's that sort of immediate sensation of like that doesn't belong on that face. But then, Hmm. you know, it can make it kind of stand out and more effective for that. But like as as far as, you know, the effectiveness of the ending, I think as Keith said in his opening, like it really is so effective because of what comes in between those two scenes. And I think what's so remarkable about the ending and the film as a whole is how it avoids sort of easy moralizing or easy diagnosis. And I really like um, how it sort of wraps this drinking culture into sort of a, a national identity, and how that sort of trickles down to individual identity and individual action. And just the film's like overall approach to the idea of alcoholism and what it really means, both on a broad scale and uh, individual level, I think is really nuanced and avoids sort of pat sentiments. And that allows that ending, which is, again, very sort of complex in terms of what these characters are experiencing in this moment, this sort of blend of sorrow over their, their friend who they have lost to alcoholism and joy in their students seeing their students on the the cusp of of everything and and celebrating in this this way and getting love and affection from their students you know it just it's all wrapped together and there is No, I think, real interest on the part of of Vinterberg or the movie in trying to tell us how to feel about any of that. But at the same time, it's such an emotional scene. They're not easy emotions to like drill down into specific things. It's just all kind of a, a muddle of feeling.
0: Yeah, Vanderberg described the sort of the choreography of that last scene as he wants to fly and he also wants to drown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, it, the physicality of expressing those ideas. I mean, it's it's like watching a modern dance performance, you know, you can see the self-destructiveness and yet at the same time the the letting go. The combination of Joy and celebration and forgetting for just a moment everything that's weighing you down. And at the same time, just being physically aware, like physically cognizant of the weight of the, the things that have happened and, and what he's lost and what he might gain in the future and, and the conflict between those things. It's just, it's a beautiful moment. I wish more of the film was that evocative. I do have some gripes about this movie. One of them being that at times it feels a little repetitive. You know, the the cycles of four different men All kind of going through their own personal decisions around alcohol and and behaviors and the relationship that they have with their school as a result of where they are in these cycles and where they are with each other. There, there were times that I thought this could be fleeter. And then when we get that to that, the fleetness and the perfection of that ending, I'm like, I wish there had been more of this kind of compactness, this kind of energy. Obviously, the entire movie can't be a joyous, self-destructive celebration of life through dance. But the verve that goes into it, I wish that there'd been maybe a little more of that and a little less of drunken men having very long, rambly, cyclic, circular uh, conversations with each other.
2: I will say some of the scenes that sort of approached the level of the ending, just in terms of that verve you speak of is sort of the scenes in the first third or so where we are seeing the experiments start to work. And we're mm-hmm. it's particularly in relation to these men's students and how they are teaching. Like Martin, I think, happens first, you know, where he has this, he gives a great lecture and it's like the first time he like stands, we see him stand up in the classroom and move around, you know, talk about physicality. Like there's a whole, like, you know, if I were in college, I could write a whole like five to seven page paper on just the use of sitting And standing in this Mm -hmm. movie and falling down, (laughs) you you know. But so you know that scene where Martin just like stand up, stands up and like gives this really great lecture. And then the one with Peter and his students singing when he closes the windows and it's in darkness and the music. And obviously the music is doing a lot of the emotional heavy lifting there. It's a moment, you know, where you like feel the elation of this scheme that they've concocted like bearing fruit you know i don't think that nicolaj whose idea this is the psychology teacher i don't think he has a a breakthrough teaching moment like that tommy has like a soccer game where where Specs like makes a goal and you know it's all very sweet But I don't Mm -hmm. think that in general, I think throughout this movie, Nicolás just doesn't really have the same level of success as his friends do, at least in in the early going. But he certainly has sort of the, you know, the downfall along with them. But he also kind of is the only one to come out of it
0: more or less unscathed. I mean, in part, that's because he's the chronicler. He's right. the one telling the story. He's the one taking the notes. He's the one theoretically writing the paper for all of them. You know, mm-hmm. he's the uh Anthony Michael Hall and Breakfast Club person in the this entire story.
1: The, the paper, paper. Right in bed, though.
3: Yeah, <laughs> he also, he also
1: had, his downfall actually includes I think to me the moment of the film I laughed the hardest, which is which is Sim saying him, after he beats in the bed he he, uh, he says that he's checking to see you know the breath monitor to see if he can. Drive and is told oh, yeah. that it's a baby monitor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: like the library where, where he was like, "Are we sure it's me?" Because all of his kids are constantly peeing on him. That's like one of his first lines in the film.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that stuff is good. I mean, to me though, it's always as in real life. It's always the reveling is more fun than the consequences part of the movie for me like i did mm-hmm. enjoy when the experiment was kind of working the the, the, the whole no, the scene where they just kind of have that dinner and, and concoct this scheme and they drink i mean the film really gets the euphoria and the, and the bonding and the fun of old friends just getting sloshed together i mean it really gets that feeling right i mean i appreciate the nuance that the film brings to the film it's not a teetotaler kind of a movie but but it's also i mean i guess it's sort of a drink responsibly type of movie but it but it, even it even it has moments where it's like you know what let her rip you know just don't drive but i think it's you know you know at a certain point that this is going to end this k- experiment is going to kind of you know spin out of control and they are gonna have to deal with what they're left with and that part of the movie can't help but to be a little bit deflating
2: Which is, I think, why the final scene hits as hard as it does, because you've just had this major come down moment, you know, and uh, the ending is sort of a reminder of like it's not all bad. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, it can be bad. It's complicated. Alcohol and drinking is, is complicated. You know, it doesn't shy away from that. But it leaves you on a note where I think you are more emotionally able to grapple with that complication and not feel worn down by it the way that you would be if it left us with Tommy's death.
3: I was tempted to say there's not really an American film that takes this nuanced approach to drinking, but I think we may be talking about (laughs) (laughs) some some nuances when we get to the uh, comparisons.
0: I don't know. I mean, Leaving Las Vegas comes to mind as a story about somebody who consciously chooses to drink himself to death and enjoy the process.
3: Sure.
0: I mean, there is a degree to which Nicolas Cage in that film – is enjoying his life in a way other people might not, and yet there's this some of the same sense of just like monstrous self-destructiveness uh, in it uh, that there is here. And it feels to me like that. I mean, uh, you've probably seen it a lot more recently than I have, Keith, so feel free to correct me on this. It
3: gets pretty ugly. Um, <laughs>
1: it goes to even uglier places than this one. I just remember him filling up the grocery cart with... <laughs> Liquor.
3: Yeah, I mean, but you know, are is right about that. I think that there is a, there is a joy to his commitment at that in that scene. Uh, but I think we've already seen enough to, to realize this is a, a fairly tragic choice he's making, however much you might be enjoying it in, in that particular moment.
0: I mean, at the same time, the destructiveness that all four men are engaging in here. I I feel like there's a lot of self-deception going on. Mm. And part of the cloud of teen drinking, you know, young, young people in general drinking that we're seeing around them is just this constant reminder that this is an epidemic. You know, it's an, an out-of-control thing that's presented – Sort of universally as a a joyous choice that everybody engages in. Like you're young, you're having fun, uh, therefore you're drinking just exceptional amounts of alcohol. I mean, th- this is this is not people having a few beers. This is literally everybody has their own multiple bottles of uh, champagne or wine, whatever it is that they're they're guzzling down, and they're packing it down as quickly as possible. Like that opening scene is just literally about people pounding beers and running until they vomit and then drinking again and then vomiting again just over and over and over in a cycle. And because of the environment that it's in, this is all meant to be fun. I found it all a little oppressive and a a little terrifying just how universal the youth drinking culture is in this movie. And part of the tension of it all is that you have these four men who feel weighted down by life, who feel cornered by the responsibilities of school and having not really gone where they necessarily wanted to go in life and having trouble expressing themselves and having trouble in their relationships, looking at the young people all around them and thinking... Well, the key to all of this is just being hammered all the time. Like that's what they have that I don't have right now. And that's not true. I mean, part of what they have that you don't have right now is that they're young and pretty universally like young and fit and beautiful as compared to, you know, four old men who are looking very wrinkly and heavy and tired eyed and sad and surrounded by like weighty burdens. There's a contrast between these two groups of people that's very visual and uh, very well expressed. And all of them seem to think they can sort of bridge the gap with alcohol. In the same way, the kids are all mostly seemingly carrying a a heavy weight of fear that they won't succeed, uh, the heavy weight of responsibility in their schooling. And they're trying to ignore it and get past it with alcohol. I mean, I I think this film gives a pretty big argument that alcohol is a way of forgetting the weight of the world, but it's not a particularly good solution to it. It's just a way to obliterate yourself for a while.
2: So then, to continue in, in that vein, what are we to make of the development where I believe it's Peter advises the the anxious student to have a have a drink during his, his exams, or he, a couple times, a couple different times, he sort mm-hmm. of urges him to do what he's doing, you know, to loosen him up. I confess to not really being able to wrap my head fully around that in relation to sort of the film's broader depiction of uh, youth drinking.
0: I mean, I found that sequence pretty fascinating because it's so unequivocal about the idea that alcohol cures anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol cures worries, alcohol makes you smarter, it makes you more expressive, it makes you more yourself. It, it felt a little bit like a vodka ad, you know, <laughs> there was just that feeling of, if you want to be young and beautiful, drink Budweiser, like that kind of uh, sales pitch. And it's so unameliorated, you know? It's so uncomplicated. It's There's no downside to it whatsoever. And I feel like on some level, that scene is in there to counterbalance what happens to Tommy. You know, to make sure that nobody believes that Vinterberg is saying that alcohol is just plain destructive.
1: It's the cause of and solution to all of life problems. <laughs> I,
0: I thought of that a lot during this movie, and especially at the end. The scene with
2: Peter and the student it struck me as much darker than you're describing it like that. Like maybe it's just because of its position in the movie as sort of like at the point where the wheels are kind of falling off of, of this experiment, but it, it kind of struck me as like a, you know, a crossing the Rubicon moment or, or to like throw back to our, our previous episode and the feedback letter, letter we got of, you know, this is, this is the bridge too far, y- you know? Um, but that's how I processed it in the moment, but I don't, th- think the film ever really came back to that development in any meaningful way for that reading to to have any weight I guess but that's just how I processed it in the moment as sort of a moment that Peter went too far
1: though I think it, I think the film does seem to accept the premise that a little bit of alcohol is yeah, kind of a plus. I mean,
2: there's that whole montage with all the politicians. I can't believe we haven't we haven't brought up before. You know, or <laughs> yeah. um, clearly implying that uh, they're all some degree of sloshed in, in this, uh, in in these clips. And there were a few I didn't recognize, but uh, there were much more I did and could definitely see see what you're doing there, Tommy.
1: You could add <laughs> you could you could add Lindsey Graham to that. <laughs> I don't know if you saw his <laughs> like his like speech on the Senate floor. He was clearly, uh, you know, at least two sheets to the wind. Yeah, it's interesting, but uh, it's almost like that. But I think I, you know, that's a sub- specific thing that I tend to agree with. I mean, they call it a social lubricant, but just like it's the whole bowling thing. I mean, we used to go bowling yeah. for the for pitchfork. It's like you know, you get the pitcher of beer. You want to have a, maybe one and a half beers, and then you're yeah. gonna bowl pretty well. Be I mean, I, I,
2: I regularly have somewhere between one and two cans of uh, soft liquor during the <laughs> recording of this podcast. Usually, Shocked. usually
3: Shocked.
1: I know. And yeah, I'm not <laughs>
2: the only one.
1: <laughs> and, 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 and your end of the podcast comes out perfect. <laughs>
2: That's because I can... See, you podcast drunk, edit sober.
3: (laughs) I mean, one of my
0: my all-time favorite memories of this podcast from uh, the days when we all got together in person to record it was talking about some documentary or the other. And the the moment I said, no, maybe it wasn't a documentary, talking about some movie or the other based on a true story and me saying, uh, all right, you know my feeling about movies based on true stories. And all three of you reached for the wine at the same time. (laughs) Uh. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really great humor to be had uh, around alcohol in movies and, and storytelling. And a lot of it stems from, I mean, there's the the classic gag of the guy that sees something outlandish and looks at the bottle of booze that he's been drinking from and, and throws it away. And whatever it is, it is, it's a real thing that the audience knows is a real thing within the context of the movie but he assumes that it isn't because he's been drinking there's just a lot of tropes and clichés and visual gags like that shorthand and i think one of the interesting things that this movie does is sort of contends with the good and the bad of drinking of being drunk of the difference between drinking alone and drinking socially the difference of drinking celebratorily and self destructively uh, that just Uh, a whole lot of different ways and means and reasons and degrees of drinking
3: well that's a pretty good breakdown of 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 drinking i think we're done talking about drinking for the rest of the oh wait no we still have to do the uh, connections with sideways so (laughs) we'll be do that we'll be doing that in just one moment Time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think it's a pretty easy place to start here. Which is, um, well, there's a lot of easy places to start, but let's start with middle age and lost youth, which seems to be a uh, pretty central to uh, the concerns of all all six of our of our drinking men.
2: Yeah, we talked in the first episode on on sideways about sort of the like how Miles and Jack friendship began you know they were college guys together and presumably been drinking uh, less than impressive uh, wine together at, at that point you know it's definitely more backgrounded in sideways I think sort of their their history as young men than it is in uh, another round which like opens with a quote about youth does anyone did anyone happen to take that down or, or have it handy
3: oh youth is a dream and love is the content of this. That dream. It's a Kierkegaard quote. I, I don't. Yeah. I, th- I, I may. Be, I may be butchering it a little bit, but I think it's something to that yeah. effect.
2: It opens the film, so it's clearly placing us into this this notion. You know that w- the the events we are about to see should be processed through the the framework of thinking about, uh, or you know, perhaps trying to recapture one one's youth in one's current day actions.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a thing where drinking becomes a, a way to blunt some of the miseries of being uh, disappointments of being a middle-aged person and also you know of course recapturing the lost joy and, and vigor and, and fun of being young these two films that it's kind of eerie how much they have in common for the fact that they're also about teachers as mm-hmm. uh, as well with miles as a teacher and in um, sideways
2: Although we don't see him uh, in the classroom until the very end, the you very know, end. and right. um, which, you know, struck me as an interesting contrast point considering how much of another round does take place in the classroom. And it, it is like much more interested in how these men are as teachers and how they interact with actual young people.
1: And it's shorthand. It really shows how much Miles and you know Martin at the beginning of the movie have in common and they just seem checked out. <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's remarkable how similar those classroom scenes are. There's a sense, I think, in Sideways that Miles is maybe a little more sympathetic to his students. Like he actually does seem to be at least there with them, even while he's just sitting there passively having them read. Uh, Whereas Martin seems actively checked out, like actively bored. But both of them are being very passive teachers. Both of them are marking time. It feels like they're sitting down. (laughs) they're sitting down
2: (laughs) and not drinking and also we've already brought it up a couple times but uh, martin's jazz dancing or jazz ballet is sort of a a motif of his youth that runs throughout the film it's it's constantly referenced not constantly but it's repeatedly referenced um you know and it's something that he just is never quite able to do until this very important moment when he is able to
1: And there's something also something in both films that it's behaviorally kind of pathetic about trying to capture lost youth when you're, you know, a middle-aged person, when you're, you know, somebody like Jack who wants to sow his wild oats, you know, at his mm-hmm. age. Or if you're like a Nicolaj in Another Round who who comes home to small children and a lot of responsibility to have his wife wake up in a bottle of his urine, that's not great either. Uh, I mean, there's, so there is something kind of pitiful that the, the film sort of points out about this effort to look at alcohol as a way to kind of claim uh, the, the youth that you've left behind you know 20 years ago
0: there is a degree to which it's also just used as a, a self-destructive device at the same time. Like it's, it's interesting the degree to which in another round, because it's so bookended by youth drinking and there's this sense of dissatisfaction in these, these older men. And so they're reaching for this way to, to connect to young people. But I look at that and contrast it with Miles again, grabbing that bottle of wine and, and defiantly running out into the vineyard trying to suck down the bottle of wine before Jackie can get to him that doesn't feel like recapturing his youth it feels like being behaving like a baby and knowing that he's behaving like a baby being a brat, basically. Like he looks at Jack like he knows he's doing something naughty. And then he runs away from him. And that feels like recapturing his toddlerhood, just I'm gonna do this and you're not gonna stop me. Um, But he has to run away because otherwise Jack is going to treat him like a toddler and grab him and take his bottle away from him. He's literally sucking on a bottle for comfort and trying to keep the adult in the room from stopping him.
2: Also in Sideways, I think Probably the character I associate because there there aren't for the most part actual children or teenagers, uh, you know, uh, in in sideways. But the sort of the character I associate with youth is Stephanie, who and I, I think like both Stephanie and Maya are are meant to present a, a little younger. May, maybe not so much Maya, who has been divorced, but also Stephanie has a, a kid. But I, I think they present. Young, because they are at least when we first meet them, they're working in the service industry. They have kind of a unattached, freewheeling lifestyle at least as as miles and and Jack uh, perceive them, and they appear to be unencumbered by sort of the the weight of middle age the way that these two men are. And, you know, speaking as a a veteran of the service industry, uh, I think it does sort of facilitate a a lifestyle that can really only be maintained in one's (laughs) youth, (laughs) you know, um, for a a somewhat short period of time. It strikes me as purposeful that both of these women characters are, you know, working in the service industry and have that sort of a lifestyle uh,
0: when compared to Jack and Miles. Yeah, Stephanie's motorcycle I think is a big oh, good signifier point. of yeah. her youth and her her kind of carefreeness, her alt uh status especially compared with Miles kind of uh you know stuffy abused older sob. There's a a feeling that her like hopping on that motorcycle with Jack taking the subordinate position behind her. You know, she's she's driving it. She's in charge of that relationship. There's a, a feeling there when she comes and picks him up that like, he's literally kind of tagging along for the ride. She's the young, free one with the, the lifestyle that supports zipping around on a motorcycle. And he's tagging along with her. And that's that's part of trying to regain that youth.
1: Yeah, and that's with the whole purchasing of the cases, cases of wine as well. and And him potentially accepting the premise of being this child's father surrogate father quite quickly yeah he's kind of willing to you know allow whatever conditions she's willing to to set for to for this relationship to continue
2: well it's a very immature relationship too compared to the one he's describing with his fiance, where you know uh he's her dad's given him a job and she special ordered the rings, which sidebar, who brings special order wedding rings in your wallet on your bachelor weekend? You leave those at home.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that was a crazy detail.
3: <laughs> you know, I, as I, can, I can speak from experience. Don't put your wedding ring in your wallet. You will lose it. Your wife <laughs> will chide you. She will buy you another ring, but she won't be happy about it. <laughs> Wow. Uh, uh, That's a remarkably specific advice. (laughs) I I think, uh, speaking of marriage, I I think that's one way uh, that these are different is is that these are not men who pursue women or younger women specifically in order to feel young again. I mean, Martin wants to get back with his wife or, or renew. The, what they had and um if you know if Nikolaj doesn't realize he has an amazing wife uh she he probably should. <laughs> I'm not sure he does by by film's end, but uh, uh that, that element is missing from from this. I wonder if there's a reason why.
2: Yeah. It's a good point. And I think I come back to the idea that like they are attempting a workday uh you know workday drinking like Mm. like at least in the beginning the framework of this experiment is you know hemingway rules you you know you stop at 8 p.m it's more about how maintaining this blood alcohol level will affect them in their jobs more than their like relationships at least like that doesn't really I guess it comes up a little bit in Martin's uh, relationship with his wife and the canoe trip and and everything Mm -hmm. with the exception of the you know the birthday party at the beginning and the binge drinking outing at the end we don't really see them going out and you know that we don't see them having a lot of opportunity to chase skirts as you put it
0: (laughs) There's certainly that feeling of, like, in sideways, the fact that they're flirting with and eventually actually dating the women that they're encountering at bars and wineries and and restaurants is very different from the, if the Another Round fellows were chasing the women who surround them in their daily life, you know, because Mm. that immediately just heads into sexual predator territory, you know, if they're teachers chasing their students like these are the, the girls that they're surrounded by all the time. Oh, thank God it didn't go that way. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it would just be a very different thing. And if it were to go in that direction where they're Going out into the world and finding young women uh, for skirt chasing purposes, it would just introduce a whole nother level of characters into a film that's already kind of crowded with characters as it is. I think it's just much more interested in how they relate to themselves and their existing relationships than how they would relate to new relationships or like new and new relationship energy.
3: So there's two different types of drinking cultures in this, in, in these two films or, or how, I mean, how similar are they? I mean, the, the sort of drink your way through wine country of California versus the uh, um, drink uh, publicly and spectacularly uh, in the evening or whenever <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in Denmark. I think we're probably getting sort of broad looks at both of these, but I mean, you know, how do, how do they play into each film?
0: I mean, I think that the drinking culture that we're seeing in Another Round is either the teen culture of uh, celebratory binge drinking, public binge drinking, or the probably fairly more common uh, – Behavior in Scandinavian countries of having the bottle having the secret bottle, they all mm-hmm. kind of have their secret supplies that they drink out of at school their their hidden bottles in their clothing, their toothbrushes or you know whatever devices they're using to disguise their drinking. Whereas in Sideways, it's all about the celebration of the adult behavior of drinking. We, you know, we talk a a lot about the recapturing of youth through alcohol and through alcohol related behaviors. But in some ways, what Miles is engaging with is, as part of his drinking culture is the adulthood fantasy of, you know, this is a hobby for serious men. It's a hobby for people with uh, reasonable amounts of money because you want to leave these wineries with, with boxes of wine. You want to save your wine over time. You want to brag about it. You want to develop a collection. You clearly want to educate yourself and have aspirations. Like all of these things are very adult. As opposed to, I'm going to chug down an entire bottle of vodka and do a dance. So it's like another round seems to be much more emphasizing the... The public uh, youth culture of drinking and the sort of shameful private culture of drinking, whereas Sideways is much more about a form of public drinking that's acceptable because it's it's rarefied, it's it's grown up, it's sophisticated, it's thoughtful, it's it's very talky, and above all, it's very social.
1: Both movies, I mean, Another Round does have m- moments where where they talk about. You know, the specific features of of, Sazeracs. Oh, right. my
0: God. That restaurant scene where they're just describing each one of those drinks. It reminds me of a, a meal that we all had together at a restaurant in Chicago, like a, a high end restaurant that had kind of a, a tasting alcohol for every Every round, and just I, I found myself. I had the the non-alcohol version of it because I wanted to be able to drive home. And watching round after round after mm-hmm. round after round of alcohol come out with rapturous descriptions of each, I was like, "How does anybody survive this?" I very oh, much enjoyed
3: that, <laughs> that was that the was the, that was the I, most drunk I've ever been in my adult life like, <laughs> what, in my post-college that, life. I
1: felt very buzzy, just buzzy from mm, that. Wait, I think, which thing yeah. I mean, was we this? What's this the, the we next? To, what's what's next? next? Yeah, okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: all right okay that's what i thought
3: yeah oh my um, so gosh, in, so in like fun. in the
0: same way i really enjoyed that scene you know the the fetici- fetici- i can never say that word
2: <laughs> are you sh- how many drinks have you had what is your blood alcohol level tasha zero
0: i'm gonna go have like eight drinks and i'll come back and i'll be able to say that word so somebody say it for me because i have a (laughs) That thing of the look of the alcohol and the the sound and smell and uh, taste and and air of it as they're getting these rapturous descriptions um, before every round. That kind of thing (laughs) makes me tempted to become a drinker uh, in ways that that almost nothing else does. Uh, That is a a really interesting scene.
2: Also, thinking about drinking culture, like – taking it away from, you know, sort of the national identity of where both of these movies take place, and putting it more into terms of just being cultured, like both of these films are about sort of intellectualizing drinking in one way or another, you know, like, obviously, Miles is very educated about wine, and will spout off about it and, you know, sort of has turned it into an intellectual exercise. But at the end of the day, he still gets really drunk and makes terrible decisions. Mm-hmm. And the guys in Another Round have put their drinking in this context of this experiment, you know, and it has the, all these, these rules and they're, they're recording it all. And it's all, you know, for science. But at the end of the day, they're falling down drunk, <laughs> you know. And so in both cases, there's this attempt to make drinking something bigger and more important and more cultured <laughs> than it ultimately is which is just a social lubricant that makes you feel kind of crappy the next day.
1: (laughs) It would be embarrassing to admit to anyone, especially yourself, that you just want to get sloshed. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's kind of what makes the dynamic between Miles and Jack so funny when they're doing these tastings is that Miles is sniffing the wine and and Mm -hmm. going on and on about
2: Tighter than a nun's asshole.
1: <laughs> oh, that was so good. And then, and then, you know, and and Jack is just he doesn't know. There's a very funny point in the movie where he spouts out some some nonsense that Stephanie has told him. But ultimately, everything tastes just fine to him as alcohol. So there's that contrast. But then, of course, the end goal is absolutely the same for both guys. They just want to drink a lot. <laughs> that's it.
2: Can I just sidetrack us really quickly to point out, Tasha, before recording this episode, you tweeted something about watching Sideways and, you know, not particularly enjoying the experience, so I have to admit, I was coming into this recording prepared for you to just sort of take down Sideways point by point and bring all these you know, very insightful criticisms to which I could respond in the words of Jack, I don't know, seemed pretty good to me. (laughs) But alas, alas, you didn't hate Sideways. Is enough for me to make my joke.
0: <laughs> I think that's oh, no. because I, I may, I, I posted that tweet about how much I was not enjoying it about an hour into the movie, and mm-hmm. as I said previously, it for me there was a a turning point, um, and that turning point kind of comes when Miles starts to be a lot more humanized, which <laughs> coincides pretty well with the point where he goes from like delivering his lengthy snobby um, descriptions of wine to Jack who doesn't give a crap and just wants to get sloshed to Maya who cares a great deal and, and can take them in and is interested and i think that is a really important point is you, you know you can go on all day about the faintest whiff of cheese or whatever <laughs> nonsense he uh, is I going believe on it was about Aguda uh you can you can do all of that to an audience that doesn't care and it's oppressive and elitist when you're talking to a fellow wine person and that's that's a lot of what uh, drinking culture is about mm-hmm. much like gourmet food culture or jazz culture or you know the culture rap culture the culture of any art that you have in common with other people like the the deep dive into the details that make it one example of thing different from other example of thing hell the conversations we have here about uh, about film when you're having them with other aficionados that care about them in the same way and on the same level like that's that's people finding their tribe when you deliver this kind of uh lengthy speech to somebody who is just like I just want to watch a Michael Bay movie where things blow up give me the popcorn <laughs> then you risk coming across like a an incredibly boring snob never
1: yeah. me though that's never happened <laughs> <laughs> People, people love it Shut when up and I do pass that the popcorn, stuff. Scott. People love it. We love to be condescended to by me.
3: <laughs> so, one level of difficulty uh, that comes with acting in these films is you had to act drunk, which isn't the easiest thing to do convincingly. And also, you probably don't want to actually be drunk while you're acting most of <laughs> the time. Uh, how, uh, you know, to what degree does everyone pull it off?
2: I mean, I think we see different sorts of drunk acting. Like, uh, Giamatti is, you know, very much sort of tapped into the sad, angry uh, drunk mode throughout. You know, I think we don't really see Miles experience any of the sort of joyful drunkenness that, that we get in another round. We've already talked about it. I'm sure we'll talk about it a couple more times before th- this uh, episode is out. But, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's, uh dance at the end of another round, you know, it is pure, well, maybe not pure joy, but it is, it is certainly propelled by joy and you know, there's a, it's a much more physical performance of drunkenness throughout throughout the film, particularly from from Mickelson, but the the others to an extent as well. But there's so much falling down, so much falling down in another, in another round. You know, like collective falling down. They seem to like be playing this game of who's who's the last one standing a couple times. So the drunk acting in another round feels much bigger. But it is also much more about the being drunk than sideways is, you know, sideways is about being depressed and how alcohol sort of fits in to being depressed. But it's not, you know, about the process of going from sober to drunk and back again the way that another round is.
0: There's that scene in towards the end of another round where Tommy shows up late and drunk for the staff meeting Mm. where, uh, people are talking about the problem of people possibly secretly getting drunk. It's a little too cinematic. It's a little too perfect, but the performance, the drunk performance there just reminded me so much of kind of the drinking culture situation of if you're drunk in a group of people that are drunk, it's entirely possible for for everything to be funny for everything to be perfect for other people's uh, physical sloppiness or like difficulty expressing themselves to seem perfectly natural and, and fun and fitting if you're a sober person surrounded by drunk people or worse yet a group of sober people with one drunk person inserted into it suddenly that dynamic and that that humor change a lot. And that sequence, I th- I think that the drunk performance there is very convincing in terms of the, uh, the effusiveness, but also the lack of self-awareness, the difficulty of self-expression that you don't necessarily notice when everybody's drunk and how much it stands out like a sore thumb when only one person is. And it's just, it's interesting to me how much that scene is reminiscent of, you know, being the um, the designated driver, being the one person in the room that isn't sloshed when people are binge drinking, uh, and just having that awareness of of how inappropriate people's behavior can be when they're, you know, which is one reason there's, there's so much discomfort often among people who are drinking with people who aren't drinking, mm-hmm. because of that fear of being judged, that pe- fear of being seen clearly and judged. That scene with Tommy is also reminiscent
2: of an earlier scene where Martin shows up, you know, somewhat visibly drunk, though maybe not quite at the level Tommy is, but, you know, where he's sort of like spinning around and we see some of that, that dancer's grace that, that, you know, is is hinted at throughout the film. And he sort of like spins to avoid an obstacle and then smashes his nose on on the way out the door, you know. But uh, again, going back to this idea of a very physical performance of drunkenness, like, You know, he's doing the same thing as Tommy, like coming into this teacher's lounge kind of late and, you know, causing a a little minor of a scene, but he's not... As drunk and he is has more sort of innate physical prowess or maybe not i don't know tommy is a gym teacher maybe he <laughs> is you know used to be an athlete we really don't have th- that information but when martin does that sort of careening through the teacher's lounge uh you know not entirely sober thing it's uh done in a way that you can kind of pass off and tommy absolutely cannot <laughs> well
1: there are there are different points at that point right? right they're drinking yeah. more at that point is it Martin who runs into the into the into the door doorway? Yeah. yeah, that's a good. That's a solid piece of physical comedy. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, I think I, I the actor who plays Tommy. Let me get his name right. Thomas Bell Larson. Uh, maybe the most convincing of the six drunks. I think he's. I think he's good. He's good. I, all that stuff with him on the uh, soccer field with those kids. <laughs> it's, God, looks... it's, it's
2: a pitch. It's a pitch. It's God. a pitch. Oh, <laughs> pitch you watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> you should know this. I
1: know. I know. But you know, I can you know, Americanize it. We're talking about soccer here, not football. <laughs> um, but uh, I think all around, six fine uh, drunks here. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. No. No seam showing.
3: <laughs> so we should talk about. This film's relation to alcoholism, or both both films' relation to alcoholism, which was complex, I think, in both ones. I'm not sure. I think the one clear alcoholic in this is Tommy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he suffers the worst fate and 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 has most can't control his drinking. But is anyone else in these films alcoholic by the, the you know traditional definition?
1: Miles. I I don't. It's know. tough though. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: Really. I, I well, pretty-
2: I mean, I think you can say he has a dependency. But I don't know if it's like reached the like physical dependency. I think his drinking is very much tied to his depression and to his memories of, in uh, his sense of loss, uh, tied up in his wife, who we're told was also, you know, very into wine. And contrasted with Tommy, that scene we get when Martin goes over to his house and he, it's like he's being physically pulled toward the fridge to, to get a drink, you know, even after Martin tells him a couple times, like, no, no. And uh, I think it is like on the third time he finally like manages to get the beer in his hand. But he is like being physically pulled toward it in a way that makes apparent that like he can't not drink. And not to excuse Miles, who I think is definitely over imbibing as a result of sort of his his mental health issues. But, you know, I don't recall seeing anything that indicates a physical dependency on his part. Like, we, we do see him presumably sober, you know, like during the day. It's really only when they go out drinking that he, he over imbibes. Like, he can't, once he starts, he can't stop, which mm-hmm. is another sort of wrinkle in the alcoholism argument.
1: Well, he, he does drink to sort of blot out his sadness right. and which uh which is ever present doesn't you know? don't we
2: all <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is it
1: alcoholism was just something we I, have I mean- to do
2: but I mean, I think that's particularly in the case of Another Round, what makes this such a compelling portrait of drinking, because it does sort of make you consider the boundaries of alcoholism, not just on an individual level, but again, like on a, a national cultural level, like there's the that line from Martin's wife, where she's like, whatever, this whole country is drunk anyway, you know, and <laughs> sort of the someone has sort of a funny line, like Russia was built by drunk drivers or something like People that. drinking yeah.
3: vodka and driving, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. So there's, you know, these acknowledgements of how alcohol has shaped cultures and how alcoholism <laughs> is sort of ingrained in so many cultures. And it trickles down to everyone's sort of individual relationship with alcohol, which There are so many factors influencing that from mental health on down that, you know, it gets really sticky, I think, to apply the label of alcoholic to any of these characters.
0: Yeah, I mean, for that reason, I, I just don't know if this is an interesting question. It's like looking at movie characters and trying to diagnose their their mental illnesses specifically, or looking at people in advice columns or looking at people in your own life and trying to di- diagnose their mental illnesses. You know, it's such a complicated tapestry of uh, personality decisions and, and behavior. And I think in the end, pointing at a given film character and saying that one is an alcoholic and that one isn't al- an alcoholic is just sort of like a splitting the, the kind of hairs that I find pretty boring in terms of what exactly what genre is this? Um, what what can we rule it out of? What can we, what simple simplistic label can we slap on it? Um, but also in terms of uh, what you were talking about earlier, Genevieve, in terms of Well, it you know I'm I may drink excessively. I may binge drink excessively. I may black out a lot. I may have driven my friends away. But I'm still better than they are. Mm -hmm. I I still engage in like smarter behavior than the people in this film. So they're alcoholics and I'm not. Like in the end, is it really important whether we can slap that specific label on any individual person or not? Or does it just come down to like who are they hurting in their lives besides themselves?
2: Well, I think the question is interesting, not as asking it of specific characters. It's more that both of these films raise the question in the viewer, because they are both complex portraits of drinking and people's relationship to alcohol. I think both films engage with this question, whether they invite you to ask that question of its characters Eh, I'm I'm less certain of that, but
3: yeah, I think the bigger point is there is a traditional film about alcoholism. It's, the you know, someone drinks too much, someone comes to realize it, someone gets better or they die, and it's you know, I don't think either of these films. I think both of these films may have alcoholics in them, but I don't think they're films about alcoholism per se. Does that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: I but I I do think with 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 Miles, it is it becomes an important point to, to that his connoisseurship kind of uh, puts a shine on on the, the possibility that he's just a, a drunk mm. or somebody, you know, I mean, it's, it's much, you know, if you can describe the thing that you're, you're drinking in sophisticated terms, you can convince, you know, everyone, uh, including yourself, that you're not just a binge drinker and not, not somebody who, who's, you know, trying to drown out, drown his sorrows all the time by drinking way too much and too often.
3: All right. Well, with that, I think we have not resolved this question, but neither of these films resolve in traditional ways. So I think that's probably an okay way to end this discussion. Sideways is available for rent on the usual VOD services and on DVD and Blu-ray, though for some reason the Blu-ray is out of print. It's also Um, currently on Stars. Oh, yes, currently on Stars. That's how I watched it. Uh, stars, a good service. Um, next Picture Show is brought to you by. Okay, anyway. Uh, another round is currently available on various VOD services. We'll be right back with your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you right now?
0: Well, I'm punting a little on the whole right now thing because – I have spent the last several weeks just mainlining 2020 films for list purposes. And then as soon as we got into January, I started watching films that are all embargoed that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. And I, in some cases that won't be out for a month or two. So there's not a lot that's out now that I can talk about. So I thought to myself, what would I want for the triple feature here? What's what's the trifecta of Ooh. drinking films? And I immediately <laughs> flashed to Days of Wine and Roses. The Blake Edwards movie from 1962 starring Jack Lemon and Lee Remick as a uh, couple who fall into alcoholism together and then fall back out of it and fall back into it back and forth. It is an interesting film about alcoholism. I I will outright say that there are parts of it that are so over the top that are so scoldy about alcohol. They they kind of this movie does in places feel a bit like the alcohol version of Reefer Madness. I mean it it is comedic in its over the topness at times. But Lemon and Remick are just really interesting performers, and I I think that this story gives them both just a whole lot of scenery to chew in terms of (sighs) – Disdaining alcohol and then slowly being seduced by it, and then being taken to uh, in incredible bottom of the barrel uh, places with it. There's a scene involving Jack Lemmon and a greenhouse that is just one of my favorite things to ever happen in cinema because it's so over the top and it's so entertaining, and yet at the same time, it's such a perfect illustration of somebody hitting rock bottom and just digging themselves in deeper and deeper and deeper. Both of these films that we talked about today are films about people making poor choices and, and digging themselves in progressively deeper until it's very hard for them to come back. And Days of Wine and Roses just feels like a, a perfect pairing, or trip pairing. I don't, I don't know a what triptych? you call it. Triptych. <laughs> uh, a filmmaking. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for the verb version. So trip ticking. Um, <laughs> In terms of just like finding a a completely different portrait of binge drinking, the culture around it, what might draw people into it in terms of things that they want to experience, the things that they want to recapture, things that they don't want to see in their lives or don't want to think about. But it also provides sort of an interesting view into the struggle uh, for people who have spent a bunch of time at the bottom of the bottle and find it safer and warmer there to try to struggle back up from under it and uh, the different stages that are involved both in heading down and coming back up. So I'm not going to hold Days of Wine and Roses out as uh, it's certainly like a perfect film or uh, Jack Lemmon's best film or the the film to understand Lee Remick or anything like that. Uh, but I think it is tremendously entertaining as an experience. You know, if you, if you go in with the expectation that some of it is going to deliberately make you laugh some of it's going to inadvertently make you laugh and then some of it is uh remarkably effective and tragic have you guys seen days of wine and roses
3: i haven't i'd like no, to either. But yeah. yeah i think oh, i've
1: goodness. seen so many blake edwards films but not that one yeah,
0: yeah. that surprises me about uh I like the
1: about funny blake edwards
3: classic yeah I mean, the, see, the direction on the movie is really fun you've seen switch you've seen that's life you've seen uh, another fine mess but have you seen <laughs> <laughs> have you seen days of wine and roses Uh,
0: So, yeah, there it is. It's available uh, pretty broadly on the usual round of VOD services. Genevieve, what about you? What's good for you?
2: Uh, Well, I am going to talk about a a somewhat recent movie, a 2020 movie that uh, barely made a a blip on my radar, and it seems like most other people's as well. Uh, That is the film Let Them All Talk, the latest from Steven Soderbergh, which made a fairly quiet streaming debut, as most of his recent films seemingly have done. And like his previous release for Netflix, The Laundromat, this one stars Meryl Streep. Uh, Unlike that film, though, this one is actually pretty good and enjoyable, (laughs) probably in part because it's a much more lightweight and nimble movie uh, centered on Streep's character, Alice Hughes, a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist struggling with her latest book, who is on a crossing aboard the Queen Mary II to England, where she's set to receive an illustrious prize. Joining her on the crossing are her old college friends, played by Candace Bergen and Diane Weist, along with her nephew, played by Lucas Hedges, and unbeknownst to Alice, her literary agent, played by Gemma Chan, who is trying to glean more information about her book. Uh, The reasons for Alice taking a ship to England and for requesting to bring along her friends, whom she seems to have grown estranged from, uh, don't become fully apparent until the end of the film. So I won't spoil it other than to say that what appears to be on the surface, a sort of uh, seafaring lark, reveals itself to be a little weightier as it goes along. The screenplay is credited to short story writer Deborah Eisenberg, who, if you're interested, is the longtime partner of Wallace Shawn. And it has some interesting ideas about writing and the nature of creation and the commercialization thereof, some of which, incidentally, are uh, not that unrelated to ideas Miles brings up in Sideways. But I'll admit that a lot of the pleasure of this movie comes from just sort of kicking around on this giant ship with these actors who are all quite strong here, especially, I think, Weist. That tracks with the reports that Soderbergh was more or less working off of Eisenberg's outline, but otherwise encouraging the cast to improvise most of their dialogue during a two-week shoot aboard the actual Queen Mary 2. And you can kind of sense in the film's style and energy how much fun everyone was having aboard this ship, uh, particularly Soderbergh, who explores it so enthusiastically with his camera, finding all these interesting spaces and unexpected setups in which to place his cast. It's not a particularly lighthearted movie in subject matter or theme, but it feels very light on its feet as a film. And it's nice to see Soderbergh and Streep collaborating on something that seems to play more to their strengths. Um, it's on HBO Max. I, I don't think I, I mentioned that, but uh, you know he's he's moved on from Netflix to, to the Max. And I, I think he has an, another film coming out uh, there this year. So it's the HBO Max era of Soderbergh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a huge... Swing for the fences this this movie no. you know and i and i i have to say that the big reveal was a just didn't quite connect to me with mm-hmm. me as a, as a as much as i wanted to but it is nice to spend time with these actors and performers and and it is interesting to see soderberg embrace an improvisational style you know for better or worse i mean that you know uh, it, it does I mean, you definitely know it's an improvised movie based on on the way some of the dialogue kind of circles around in a way that written dialogue doesn't. But I like the performances here, and I, also, I always always like Lucas Hedges. Lucas Hedges is a way of uh, choking me up every film. It's like
2: yeah, and he has to he has to carry a lot of the the weight of the like the emotional burden
1: of of the
3: <laughs> He's this Very film. good at that.
2: But um, yeah, I I I would recommend it. A, a breezy watch. So Keith, what about you?
3: So I realize I've been recommending a lot of horror movies lately during this time, so I'm going to <laughs> recommend a horror movie, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I was really taken with this film I kind of watched uh, just kind of on a flyer. Uh, well, I had a recommendation, the recommendation came from, um, our friends Angelica, uh, Jay Bastian, and Alison Wilmore's, uh, best horror films of the year list they did for Vulture. Uh, and a, t- a title I had never heard of called Inpedagore. So I'm like, I'm going to, Inpedagore, I'll watch that. <laughs> it is an Indonesian horror film from director Joko Anwar. And it pretty much gripped me from the first scene, in- which involves our heroine, played by Tajra, uh, Tara Basra. It's a, um, toll booth operator working alone and, and talking to her friend on the phone about how the strange man keeps driving by over and over and over again, and we finally see this strange man, and they have an awkward interaction, and then uh, he parks the car and gets out and starts attacking her with a machete. <laughs> and it's just—it's just the most uh, fastest escalation of tension I've seen in a horror film in a while. And uh, from there, it just kind of goes in all kinds of different directions. It involves um, uh, Maya and her friend going back to her, uh, Maya's village where she was born and left very early, and finding out that she has inherited a big house, and with that house, a lot of dread secrets. And I don't want to give like I said—I don't want to go too much away, but. It's it's the kind of film in which a skinless hermit is kind of like an incidental detail. It's like, oh, yes, there, there's, here, there's a skinless hermit. We will see the skinless hermit. But it's not really that, not the most important element of this film. And it also has um, lots of cool shadow puppetry, which plays a big role. Traditional Indonesian shadow puppetry, uh, which is just cool in its own right. Uh, it is only available in Shudder. But, you know, there's lots of good stuff on Shudder. So if you, if, you, if you have it already, check it out. And if you don't, yeah, give it a chance. Uh, Scott, how about you?
1: Yeah okay so this is going to be a, a little bit of self promotion ra- ra- recommendation wrapped <laughs> up in self promotion. Uh, so the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline has been doing since it's been closed they've been doing all of these virtual seminars where where you know a critic or scholar or whoever will you know you you sign up you know the, you, do, you you have a little preview you sign up for whatever film is being discussed. There's a, sem- you know, whatever you, the money you pay goes towards the seminar, which is a 20 or 30 minute, you know, lecture. And then on a specific date, there's an hour long Zoom call in which, which the film is discussed and there are questions answered, et cetera. Uh, and I'm doing one for, one of my favorite films, Once Upon a Time in the West, by Sergio Leone. The date of that you can sign up now. The date is of the call of the of the Zoom is February fourth at eight o'clock. The movie is available on Amazon Prime, so you can see it quite easily. And this is just you know, again, like I said, one of my favorite movies. This is this is uh, Leone taking what he'd done in his Dollars Trilogy with Clint Eastwood and uh, taking it to the next level, setting this film in a place, you know, in an unsettled American territory where this valuable piece of land, this piece of of property that happens to be the the region's only, atop the region's only water source, you know, a train is going to be run through it and that train uh, is going to be worth a tremendous amount of money. And so there are a lot of parties that converge on This area to kind of fight over this scrap of land, which which uh, Claudia Cardinale is the one who owns it. But uh, uh, there are other people in the cast is, uh, is um, like uh, Jason Robards is in the movie. Uh, Charles Bronson plays kind of a man with no name type oh, and he's got
3: a name. Harmonica,
1: harmonica, he, he, because he plays the harmonica. But uh, it's got a wonderful, it's got a wonderful Ennio Morricone score where that harmonica turns into just a lot of interesting, uh, other instrumental flourishes. And then, of course, the real standout performance here is by Henry Fonda, uh, who the Henry Fonda of *Twilight* Men, of *Young Mister Lincoln*, of *The Lady Eve* is here. One of the most evil, <laughs> cold-blooded. <laughs> you know the sociopathic man ever to be put in a movie and um it's amazing that he acquiesced to play this role it's an incredible piece of casting and uh and i just think the film is just rich and highly enjoyable and and uh you know even if you do not sign up to this seminar that i'm that i'm running (laughs) you gotta see it if you haven't seen it because it's 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 a real masterpiece so the west.
3: Oh, one of the best movies. Just just yeah, one of the best movies. It's, it's uh, just a
1: movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a damn movie.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out on February 2nd and 9th. Tasha, what do we have on tap?
0: Emerald Fennell's debut film, Promising Young Woman, has been a hot topic for debate since it premiered at Sundance in January of 2020, with critics praising its crisp look and feel and its grim comedy while feeling queasy about the direction the story eventually takes. It's a subversive play on the old idea of the rape-revenge thriller, which gave us a challenge when we were thinking about pairings. There are plenty of older rape-revenge movies, but they tend to be pretty tawdry and exploitative. Fortunately, Fennel gave us the key herself when naming her influences on the film. One of them was Mary Heron's equally dark and queasy movie American Psycho, and an adaptation of a Brett Easton Ellis book that considerably improves on the source material. Promising Young Woman is about a survivor hunting down abusive men, while American Psycho is about an abusive man hunting down women. But both are about gender relationships, particularly around sex, class, the truth, and the perception of whose lives and desires matter. And both are about people pretending to be things they aren't, while struggling for some kind of emotional balance with their own darkest desires. Promising Young Woman and American Psycho, two movies about different kinds of predators and different kinds of prey, next on The Next Picture Show.
3: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Sideways and Another Round, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 773 Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha?
0: I am the film and TV editor at Polygon. I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? I am the TV editor at vulture.com and you can find me and not
2: really tweeting on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott?
1: Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Occasionally, Prompting Genevieve's tweet. The only uh, reason
2: I tweet is to get the the heart from Scott every single time, purely because I have tweeted. (laughs)
1: Smash, smashing the heart button. (laughs) Um, uh, I love smashing things. Subscribe (laughs) the subscribe button. Amazing, so smashable. Um, Anyway, uh, wow. You can. can I'm a freelance (laughs) film and television writer. Uh, You can find my work at New York Times, uh, uh, Guardian the the ringer vulture and other fine publications you can also hire me to write something (laughs) freelancer and uh i'm also the editor of uh the oscilloscope uh, musings blog which is which is back so um uh i'm excited about uh what we might have coming in the year 2021 uh keith
3: Scott, I'm the one who's supposed to have hire me desperation when I go through my credits, <laughs> not you. Uh, but I am also a freelance, uh, film and TV writer. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. That's where I post what I write for places like, uh, Vulture and The Ringer and Mel and GQ and Polygon and, uh, what am I forgetting? I think that's TV Guide sometimes. So, yeah. Uh, so that's it. Yeah. Again, KFIP3000 on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net or via Twitter at at NextPicturePod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. What a-